This is Amy Poehler. My new movie, Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2, is coming to theaters June 14th, and it's making me feel joy and sadness and anger. Definitely some disgust. Rose! And I think a little fear. But I'm also feeling these new emotions like anxiety, embarrassment, envy, and ennui. It's what you call the boredom. Okay, that one was weird. It's going to be the feel-everything movie of the summer. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters June 14. Get tickets now. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is the New Books in East Asian Studies podcast. Thanks very much for joining me, and welcome to the show. I just had a great time, and you'll hear this, um, you'll hear evidence of the great time being had, talking with Minsu Kang about his recent translation of the story of Hong Gildong. This came out in 2016 with Penguin Classics. Now, this is a really cool and really important book to come out. Um, And it's an important book, I think, for listeners to know about, not only because it is a new translation of, um, again, what you'll hear me um, say in a moment is arguably the single most important work of classic prose fiction of Korea. That's in the words of the book. It's such a pleasure to read. It's also going to be a resource that's really, really useful to teach with. So those of you who are listening who like a good story, this is a kind of, it's been described as a kind of Robin Hood figure for Korean literature, who are interested in learning more about Korean literature, but also who are interested in having more really great readable, readable in a week, affordable, fascinating primary sources to teach with in all kinds of undergraduate and graduate courses, um, this is really a book worth checking out and worth knowing about. So it's an extensive interview, so I'll let you get right to it. Um, but I'll just say, um, I hope you enjoy. Thanks very, very much as ever for listening and for your support of the channel and um, happy reading when you do get your hands on it and happy listening for now. I'm here today to talk with Minsu Kang about his really great new translation of the story of Hong Gildong. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Minsu, and thanks not just for making time to talk with me today and dealing with the time difference, but also for translating an awesome, super fun, super assignable, and super great book. Welcome to the channel, and thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. This is great. And uh, oh, thanks for the compliment. That's, uh, I'm, I'm really glad that um, this, uh, this work of classical uh, Korean fiction will become better known to uh, English readers. Great. So, Minsu, we've actually had a chance to talk before for a different podcast, for the New Books mm-hmm. and STS podcast about your previous book. But for listeners who haven't had a chance to listen to that one, um, let's start by talking a little bit about what you're working on when you're not translating the story of Hong Gildong. So can you say a little bit about um, kind of what your research area is right now and what you're currently working on when you're not translating? Sure. Um, so I guess uh, I could say that my day job is as a uh, intellectual historian of uh, Europe in the 18th and 19th century, um, specializing in uh, intellectual and cultural history of Western Europe. Um, and uh, much of my previous research had been done on the uh, history of automata. Um, and my last book, um, The Sublime Dreams of Living Machines, um, was on the history of automaton and uh, how it was um, utilized as a uh, intellectual symbol throughout the centuries, um, and uh, from the narrow time period from ancient Greece to the 1930s, uh, and uh, uh, so I, that's that's an area still that I'm doing a great deal of research for and uh, planning out sort of next couple of 
books on. Um, and uh, um, and also I, I write I also write fiction. Um, I've written a uh, book of short stories um, called Of Tales and Enigmas. Um, and uh, working on uh, a novel right now. Um, and especially gotten interested in um, science fiction versus fantasy, not science fiction and fantasy, um, but science fiction versus fantasy. Uh, I've written a, uh, um, uh, an essay recently on a volume that's going to come out on medieval science fiction um, about the way in which uh, science fiction versus the fantasy genre looks at the European Middle Ages and how, how that's different and so on. Um, and that's, uh, that's one of the areas that I'm interested in at the moment. Very cool. And if we have time later, I'm going to want to hear all about how you managed to find the time to do all of these fabulous things yes. and sleep and eat and teach. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in the meantime, um, we'll just kind of leave it there and, and bask in the uh, awesomeness of all of these things that you're doing. So the book that we are here to talk about today is a translation of the story of Hong Gildong, which the book calls arguably the single most important work of classic prose fiction of Korea. So this is a big deal. This is a really important work to translate. Let's Mm -hmm. um, kind of talk a little bit about how you came to this particular project. Why was it important for you um, to translate this work and what drew you to this project and also made it feel like a project that, you know, you you wanted to commit um, this much of your resources to? Yeah. um, So for anybody who had a childhood in Korea, um, Hong Gil-dong is um, inescapable. Uh, he's part of the culture. He's, um, and, you know, and as I pointed out, uh, as I pointed out in the introduction, um, the extent of his fame is that uh, the name Hong Gil-dong is used as like a placeholder name, like John Doe, so that like if you sh- if they if people show your form, how to fill out a form, and the place where you're supposed to put your name, uh, it says Hong Gil-dong on it, right? <laughs> Uh, I've been to funeral parlors in Korea where they show different tombstones and all of them had Hong Gyo-dong where the name is supposed to go. (laughs) Yeah. um, And in America, um, the simplest way to check this out is if you go to the Wikipedia um, article on Korean names, uh, as an example of a typical Korean name, they will show Hong Gyo-dong in both the uh, Korean Hangul letters as well as in Chinese characters. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's sort of like that. This is like a typical. Korean name, right? Um, and also the image of uh, animated Hong Gil-dong, uh, that's everywhere. So um, uh, I was asked a couple of t- uh, times about, you know, um, when was the first time you encountered Hong Gil-dong? And I'm like, that's an impossible uh, question to answer because that's like asking an American, when was the first time you encountered Superman or Mickey Mouse? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so it's so part of the culture, right? I mean, that's just what you grow up with. Um now, um, but to give you a more specific answer, um, when I was an undergrad, um, I took a class on um, uh, introduction to um, cultural history. And one of the books that we read for that class was um, Eric Hobsbawm's um, book, Bandits. And, uh, um, you know, of course, Eric Hobsbawm is most famous for his pioneering work on European nationalism. But this this slim book just really had an enormous influence on me because, um, well, first of all, he asks uh, this question. I mean, human beings, we come together, we build civilization, we come out with a set of laws because 
obviously that's preferable to living in a state of anarchy or in a Hobbesian state of nature. But if civilization is something that we as human beings inherently desire, um, why is it that so many of our heroes and celebrated figures are outlaws? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's completely understandable why we would laud, um, you know, uh, uphold us of civilization and uphold us of law. But, you know, we're, we're as fascinated with outlaws to the extent of um, uh, making heroes out of them, right? And, you know, this is one of those books where I go, you know, that's a really good question. <laughs> and uh, um, and in order to answer that question, Hobsbawm um, points to a number of different character types, um, you know, that are celebrated outlaws, um, among which is the figure of the noble robber. And uh, <clears throat> and he gives a bunch of different um, characteristic what, of what a typical noble robber is, including... Uh, his career as an outlaw begins um, from an injustice he or people around him suffers. Um, he uh, um, he takes from the rich and gives to the poor. Uh, the only time he kills is in self-defense or in defense of you know innocent people. And uh, and there's also the interesting conservative element, which is that with these noble robber types, they are never against the highest authority of the of the land, but against local oppressors. Mm-hmm. Right. So. Um, so, so for instance, uh, Robin Hood is not uh, against King Richard. He's against the Sheriff of Nottingham, who is abusing the power given to him by high authorities. Right. Um, but anyway, I mean, so you look at this, and um, and obviously for you know uh, most uh, Western um, you know uh, Westerners, I the immediate figure is obviously Robin Hood. Um, but Hobsbawm's book was extraordinary because he shows that you can find that person like anywhere in the world i mean there's a west african robin hood there's a chinese robin hood there's a uh, you know eastern european robin hood um you know um it's like you take those uh, descriptions of the noble robber and you could probably go to any place in the world and a local person would say oh yeah we have one of those <laughs> right mm-hmm. um and for me I immediately thought this is Hong Tong, right? I mean, Hong Tong is not mentioned in the Hobsbawm book, but I—that's just immediately what I thought of. Um, and uh, so I ended up writing my final paper on for that class on Hong Tong and applying Hobsbawm's ideas to him. Um, and uh, um, and at that time, there was a translation of the story of Hong Tong that was made in the 1960s um, by Marshall Pill and. Um, and I, I felt that the translation was a little bit odd. I mean, it was, it was, um, it felt truncated. I mean, there were plot points that was never resolved, and uh, um, it felt a little bit. Um, I mean, I, I thought that there were stories in there. There, there were stories that were supposed to be in there. There wasn't. Um, and later on, what I found out was that, um, you know, there's no less than thirty-four different existing manuscripts of the story of Song Yeltong. And they're all of different length. Um, and the translation that was made in the uh, made uh, in the sixties was one of the shortest variants um, among all these different uh, things. Um, and uh, for reasons that I might get into later, um, the shorter versions are seen. Uh, I mean, scholars have uh, have pointed out the shorter versions are the later versions. That if you want to get to the version that is. Either the either the Ur text or the one that's closest to it, you you got to look at the longest version. Um, and so, um, so the longest version, uh, the Pilsar eighty nine, um, 
is is like five times the length of the shortest versions um, that 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 is in existence. So, um, you know, based upon my research, I thought it would be the best idea to um, to tackle the translation of the longest version, which is what I did. Um, now, um, so uh, you know, after that class, you know, I went on to grad school, um, and for various personal reasons, I decided to go into European history. Um, but um, since then, I've always said, that, okay, one day I'm going to revisit this. <laughs> uh, one day I'm going to get back to Hongiltong and do some research and and do a, uh, a an updated uh, new translation. Um, probably after I get tenure. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. I hate that. I <laughs> yeah, exactly. That. Right. <laughs> uh, and that's exactly what happened. You know, I you know got a tenure track job. Got you know wrote my tenure book. Got tenure, and I and I had some time you know to decide what to do next. And I revisited, and I thought you know um, I thought this was going to be a, a short project, right? Um, because I thought that there was going to be, I mean, I was going to do some research on these different variant manuscripts and it was going to be a similar length. But then I, when I started doing actual historical research on, um, I mean, the history of the story and the history of the manuscript, um, it felt like I stepped on a scholar's minefield <laughs> because there were extremely complicated issues that has to do with the origin of the story, um, the controversies and the debates about, you know, who wrote it and when and um, and again, which variant is the um you know, is, is the oldest one and so on. Um, and, uh, but, you know, what I found extraordinary was that um, as difficult as it was for me to hash through all of these difficult issues and, and also, oh God, I mean, getting through the like pre-modern Korean was a huge challenge for me. I mean, uh, really different kind I, of language, right? Exactly. I mean, I've done some translation of modern Korean works um, and, yeah, I mean, you, I mean, you know, as you know, I mean, it's like there's a great divide when modern literature begins in East Asia, um, because starting in the very late 19th and early 20th century, there's a whole generation of Korean writers who studied modern literature in Japan, um, learning from Japanese literature or Japanese translations of um, uh, Western literature and applying the same kind of um um, craft to Korean literature um, and it's a world away from anything that existed before that um, and so I really have to put myself in a different uh, different mindset um, uh, to tackle on this work but um, you know what I found was that um, it was enormously challenging but I was having so much fun doing it <laughs> And I realized that, you know, you know, you hit upon a project that you are meant to do when, I mean, if it's, if you're having fun and it's easy, then, you know, it's fun, but it's probably not worth doing that much. Um, But if it's really difficult, but at the same time, you're not enjoying it, then it's probably, you are not probably meant to do it. But when it's enormously difficult, but you're having like a great time every step of the way, that's, that's really the right project for you. (laughs) And, uh, and I can't tell you how much, how much I enjoyed uh, even the most difficult part of this entire task. Um, And, you know, part of it has to do with my revisiting my childhood hero, you know, um, and all, a part of it is has to do with uh, describing all this new information as a historian um, 
and getting in touch with sort of the uh, traditional culture that I come from and so on. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so that's that's the origin of this project. That's awesome. It sounds like it would be as if there was some literary manifestation of David Bowie in Labyrinth that existed out there. And I would just be like devoting my entire post-tenure life to just write oh, about that. Yeah. That for me, that would be my Hongildong. But we're not talking oh, yeah, about okay. David Bowie here. We're talking about Hongildong. <laughs> so, so we can get to, um, there are a number of really, really fascinating issues that you bring up early on um, in the book, in the introduction that we'll talk about in a moment. But before we talk about that, you've already mentioned that this is an extraordinarily popular figure um, in mm-hmm. modern Korea today. And there are a number, and you describe some of these in the book, of uh, really interesting modern manifestations of this story. So mm-hmm. what are some of your favorite um, modern manifestations of this story? Mm-hmm. Can you could you tell us about some of them? Yes. Um, uh, <sighs> I could I could not have been happier with the cover of the Penguin Classic, um, and uh, uh, because it, it, the cover was done by a, a animation artist named uh, a Chinese American um, animation artist named Sachin Tang, and uh, it's uh, it's sort of based on a kind of advice that I gave to Penguin about what they should be looking for, um, which is that there's an I- iconic image of Hong Gil-dong that is instantly recognizable to all Koreans. Um, this, you know, this sturdy young uh, young man dressed in a blue robe and a yellow hat. Um, and that image um, comes from um, a 1967 animation movie, which is um, of, of Hong Gil-dong's story. Um which is a important uh, film in the history of Korean cinema because that was the first full-length animation movie that was made in South Korea. Wow! And yeah, and it was, um, and it's, um, and it was, um, uh, uh, it was a huge hit. And uh, um, and uh, it was based on a series of comic books that was made previous to that. Um, and uh, uh, and that image has been, I mean, not only was, you know, that, that image is important and instantly recognizable to all Koreans, not only because the movie was a hit, but, man, they used that figure for advertising purposes and all kinds of, it, I mean, I remember like it was selling batteries and, you know, during my childhood uh, in the late seventies, um, I remember like uh, there were advertising soap where Hong Gil-tong was like beating up on germs. Why right? not? You know, using <laughs> yeah. sorcery skills and, you know, like, I, yeah, exactly. I get that. I get that. Yeah. And uh, it was beating up on germs and then Hong Gil-tong will turn into a bar of soap and they said, they said buy this brand of soap it'll it'll get rid of germs like Hong Gil-dong would get rid of corrupt officials. Wow, that's... that's <laughs> and, uh, yeah. um, so all kinds of advertising and different manifestations and so on. So, um, and I, you know, and that's, um, that animation film was played, um, you know, all the, all the, this, I mean, when it was, when it was, for, uh, when it was first um, um, came out in the theaters, I was, you know, that was before my time, but um, it's, it's been repeatedly played on Korean TV. Um, and that's, uh, you know, I, mean, I, I have a personal fondness for that because of my childhood experience. And I think for most Koreans, they'll remember that figure from that uh, animation very, very fondly. Um you know, another really great, uh, you know, uh, modern manifestation that um, uh, p- people now can check out is that um, 
during the 1980s, um, there was a uh, North Korean movie hmm. of Hong Yil-dong that was made um, that is now available on YouTube. You can watch the entire thing on YouTube. Wow. <laughs> and um, it is completely interesting because the way in which they got this Joseon Dynasty story and managed in very interesting way to infuse it with modern Juche communist propaganda into into the story um and uh, um and it's also it, i mean that's also interesting in one part like like for instance um you know uh, one of the you know, famous things about north korean regime is its extreme xenophobia um uh against americans and you know south koreans were regarded as just puppets of americans and then the japanese and so on um the last part of the north korean version of hong Yotong, um has to do with Japanese ninjas invading Joseon Dynasty. Wow! <laughs> to to steal Korean women and treasures. Right? Wow! And Hong Yeo, yeah, Hong and his band of outlaws has to team up with his half brother and Joseon Dynasty's soldiers to stop these ninjas um, from yeah. from their nefarious deeds. And it's completely interesting. Um, but there's another uh, completely. Uh, fascinating element to this story that um to uh, to, to the movie uh, which is that um uh you, you may know the story i think there's been a couple of uh you know um books written on it and so on um so kim jong-il uh the not current but the last uh, leader of north korea was a huge movie buff um and uh, he wants to create a, a north korean um movie industry but he realized, I mean, they, they really did not have a proper, you know, know-how in terms of filmmaking. So, I mean, he just got frustrated with the fact that, you know, North Korean films really sucked. So, um, so he's, so his solution to this was to mobilize the North Korean secret service and kidnap South Korea's leading director and actress. As one does. You know? Yeah. I mean, what else are you going to do? Right? Yeah. <laughs> So Shin Sang-ok, the director Shin Sang-ok and uh, uh, the actress Choi Eun Hee were invited to this, uh, you know, invited to this um, non-existent East Asian film festival in Hong Kong, and they were both kidnapped and sent to North Korea. <laughs> and Choi Eun Hee tells the most remarkable story about uh, being drugged and waking up in a hotel room, and she opens up the curtains, and it's downtown Pyongyang. <laughs> it's like, how did oh I get gosh. here? And the door opens and Kim Jong-il comes in and the next thing that comes out of his mouth has become the most famous thing that Kim Jong-il has ever said. He says, uh, hello, my name is Kim Jong-il and I look like a dwarf piece of shit, don't I? <laughs> uh, so anyway, so after they were kidnapped, they were forced to make films for the North Korean regime. Um, and uh, we know all of this because um, uh, I, I don't know how long. I think it's about ten years. They um, they managed to persuade. Uh, they managed to um, persuade um, Kim Jong Il that um, they were pretty happy being there, um, and they weren't. Um, and when they were allowed to go to Europe to uh, attend a film festival, they made a beeline for the American embassy and got out of there. <laughs> and uh, and there in-depth memoir about the experience in North Korea is still to this day the most detailed um, uh, description of life in the upper echelons of North Korean society that we have today. Right? Uh, now, uh, how does this relate to Kim? Uh, so, Hong Gildong. Um, okay, so we don't know whether Shin sang directly directed Hong Gildong or he supervised a, another North Korean director to direct it, but 
we know that he was heavily involved, and this was one of the last movies that he was involved in before he managed to escape. Mm. Right? Um, and, uh, um, and you know, the, the, what's interesting to me is that it's basically a martial arts movie. It's basically a North Korean martial arts movie. Um, and uh, unlike a lot of other North Korean movies, the North Korean propaganda is definitely there, um, you know, especially with the ninjas. Right? But um, but it's actually pretty light in touch. I mean, it's basically an action movie. Um, and so this sort of, I mean, so that in, entire complicated story of Shinsang-ok development and uh, Shinsang-ok's involvement and how they use the Joseon Dynasty novel and also the presence of North Korean propaganda, that all of that combines to make this a completely fascinating movie in itself to analyze. Awesome. And it's on YouTube. Yes, the whole thing's available on YouTube. We'll try to link that for listeners, actually, after this. (laughs) So there are a number of common misconceptions about the book, but I think I'm going to bring us there after we dive into the story itself. So for listeners who, you know, they're listening, they're thinking, this sounds like a pretty interesting story and a pretty groovy character, but what the heck did he do? Like, you know, what's the big deal? Let's take them right into it. Okay, so what is the story of Hong Gildong? Well, the structure of the story has three parts of roughly equal length. And you tell us a little bit about this um, in the um, early part of the book, but let's actually work our way through and kind of hit some of the highlights and give give listeners a sense of why um, uh, some of the reasons why this story is so fascinating and really interesting. So the first part of the book is set in the compound of the Hong family. So this is Hong Gildong home, right? This is that home. And it offers a um, what you call a realistic portrayal of life in a nobleman's household. There are wives, there are concubines. They don't always get along. There are legitimate children, there are illegitimate children. And that becomes really, really important. So hi, so this is, I'm going to kind of lay the groundwork for listeners. All right. So High Minister Hong has this dream about conceiving a son at the beginning of the story. And he approaches his wife like this, you know, kind of a like classic booty call, right? I just had a dream. <laughs> Let's go make superhero boy. Um, wife says, no, go away. So instead, he goes to a servant girl named Chun Som and he conceives Hong Gildong. So Hong Gildong's mom is not the wife. She's a servant girl who then becomes promoted to a concubine. All right. So Gildong is the secondary son of a nobleman. Why, um, for listeners, right, why is this fact so interesting and important for us to understand in order to understand, like, kind of what what makes this story really important and interesting in the context of fiction from this period? Yeah, Um, yeah, great. Um, So um, one of the sort of ongoing uh, controversy throughout the Joseon dynasty is... Uh, laws and opportunities for these second uh, secondary children. Um, they're called sa'al, which literally translates secondary children, um, uh, which are defined by you know uh, children whose fathers are noblemen, but you know whose uh, whose um, whose mothers are you know either commoners or lowborn people. Right um, now, um, the. Uh, um, in the uh, in the dynasty before Joseon dynasty, in the Korea dynasty, um, polygamy polygamy was legal, and uh, um, 
And so for men who could afford to do so, they had multiple wives and, you know, children from those wives, of course. And um, and when that when a Korah dynasty man died, um, every one of his wives and children were eligible to uh, receive a part of the inher- inheritance. Right um, now, uh, chosen dynasty is found in the late 14th century and much more Puritan neo confusion society um and uh legally only one wife is permitted uh per man um and uh but that doesn't mean that you know the practice of keeping multiple women in a household for you know rich and powerful people stops right of course not right uh they continue to bring extra women into the household and they are made into uh concubines but um they have absolutely no legal standing in society and so a chosen dynasty man dies, um, and only the legitimate wife and her children uh, can receive inheritance, and everybody else is left in the lurch. Um, now, the problem is that um, you know, a problem with that is that um, the secondary children their numbers grow through the Joseon dynasty. Um, and they're more or less permanently placed in this kind of in between limbo position. You know, not not. You know, nobility and not um, uh, not commoners um, in the sec- in the secondary uh, status, which made life uh, for the children, especially, extremely difficult. Um, especially, I mean, as you as you'll see, one of the sort of ongoing laments of Hong Gilgo, right? Um, uh, for those of you who know something about Joseon Dynasty society is that the, the word for nobility. Um, oh, by the way, there is sort of an ongoing discussion about whether nobility is the right term. Um, mm-hmm. The uh, uh, the, uh, the uh, historian Eugene uh, um, Park has made a good argument that, you know, it's aristocracy will be a better term, right? Because uh, anyway, um, <laughs> um, so uh, the term for the Korean nobility or aristocracy is uh, Yangban, um, which literally means two directions or two orders. Um, And uh, that denotes uh, one of two uh, directions that a a young man born into a noble family was supposed to uh, take in order to uh, advance himself in, um, in in society, one was to take the uh, the literary examinations given given by the government uh, once every four years. Um, you know, uh, an extraordinarily difficult exam uh, examination. Uh, you know, uh, uh, which required basically you memorizing all the confusion classics uh, and mastering you know um, uh, composition skills and so on. Um, you know, it's like a, even if you're born into a noble family. Being a young son in the noble family was no joke because, like, as soon as you can start, you know, you can start reading. I mean, you're just like studying all damn day long, right? Uh, because you know the fate of the entire family depends on it, right? Um, so, uh, if so, if you pass the exam, um, then you work for the government, and hopefully through promotions, you'll get to a high ranking, pro- you know, uh, hopefully as a minister and so on. Um, that's one way. Um, and the other way is to take the military exams um, and uh, and and uh, go on the uh, career as a um, military officer. Now, um, at the beginning of the Joseon Dynasty, second there was an actual law that prohibited secondary children from taking the examinations, mm-hmm. right? Um, which meant that you know you you have a, if you're if you're a secondary son uh, in a noble family, um, you. Grow up under fairly privileged uh, um, circumstances. You probably get educated, um, and your father, your half brothers, and your relatives are uh, all part of the nobility, but you're not. Um, 
And at the end of it, because, you know, I mean, your career paths are all blocked. Um, you basically have to depend on your relatives, um, you know, financially, or you have to do like commoners work that, you know, that you might have, you, you might regard as, you know, beneath your station. Um, and this placed them in a very, very difficult situation. Um, and throughout the long 500 year history of the Joseon dynasty, there were periodic attempts to try to rectify the situation. And there were incremental prog- uh, progress, um, you know, throughout the, uh, you know, 500 year period. Um, on certain circumstances, if you're like a third generation uh, secondary son, you're allowed to take the examination. But even then, because of prejudice against, you know, your station, your chance of promotion was very, very low. I mean, you're probably going to get stuck at a low level, you know, position in government. Um, and finally, in the 18th century, the great King Yongjo, um, who, him, who himself was the son of a, uh, you know, palace maiden, uh, palace maid, um, lifted all restrictions uh, towards secondary uh, sons from taking their examinations. Um, and uh, uh, he even explicitly gave permission for them to call their fathers fathers and their, bro- you know, their half-brothers brothers. Um, but even then, I mean, you know, uh, even then, even if you pass the examination and, you know, go into government, even then, people are not going to promote you, right? Uh, so a lot of them would not even bother. Um and it's really, uh, it's really until um, you know, uh, very late nineteenth century. I mean, the, the, pretty much in the last decade of the nineteenth century, when the whole order of the Joseon dynasty was falling apart, that you had significant uh, numbers of people from these secondary son backgrounds who started to play major role um, in that society. Um, and uh, um, and that's um, and I, I you know and th- that that has to be understood in terms of what Hong Yeo-tong is going through, right? Because he's on and on and on, right? He's he complains to his father, his mother, and the king, right? I, I have all these talents. I'm so smart <laughs> and I'm so strong. Yet I I can't I can't go this way. I can't go that way. What am I supposed to do, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and he sort of indicts the society, indicts the society, um, in saying, uh, you know. Um, uh, it's it, it saying that you know I, I I was basically driven to you know become an outlaw because of my uh, you know um, the lack of my station. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, uh, there, there's an extraordinary book called uh, Beyond Birth by the historian Kyung Moon Hwang, um, which tells the story about um, you know uh, the collapse of the Joseon Dynasty order in the late 19th century and the emerging role that um, people like um, you know uh, people from you know, secondary son, uh, secondary uh, status uh, played in that century, and how important they were in establishing modernity in Korea. Awesome. So, listeners though may not know that um, after this point, we get some magic all up in mm-hmm. here. Right. So let's. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So where we are, and thank you so much for explaining that. Um, so we're in this household. There's a dream. There's a son that's born. He's kind of a problem. Okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the concubines in particular kind of gets it in for him. Um, and sets up this whole situation, and this is still in the first part of the book, where there's a physiognomist who's brought in, who makes a kind of prophecy about Hong Gildong bringing destruction to the whole family. So, um, sort of in the wake of this, there's this at- um, uh, attempt to um, kill him, right? And so, mm-hmm. one of the um, kind of main concubines hires this assassin um, 
to take his life, and the assassin comes in, and Gildong, um, in the words of the book, unleashes his sorcery all mm-hmm. over this guy. Um, so in this part of the book, we see a really, really fascinating scene where Gildong basically um, uses his sorcery, uses his magic to completely thwart this assassination attempt, to take care of the physiognomist and somebody else, and essentially, as a result of all this, he kind of comes into his power, um, and by the end of this section, we see him actually on his way to leaving the compound of the Hong family. And this brings us to kind of the second major part of this story. Um, so the first part of the story is super fascinating. The um, Using magic and sorcery to thwart the uh, assassination attempt is easily, for me, one of the most badass parts of the whole book. <laughs> but it gets even more so. Okay, so part two. So Gildong leaves his household. He finds a band of outlaws, and he becomes their leader. Now, he does this by demonstrating his worth, by lifting a really heavy rock, and by stealing some stuff from a Buddhist temple. And the whole stealing some stuff thing is very kind of interesting and also um, involves lots of sorcery and super, super fascinating. This part of the book depicts Gildong as a sort of noble robber, like Robin Hood, in, in a way that you've alluded to already. Now, this part of the book has been claimed to be particularly politically subversive. But you argue here um, that the book shows his discontent from an inability to participate in the political order, not a desire to be politically subversive and completely overthrow it. So Mm -hmm. since this seems to be a kind of interesting way into what's happening here, can you talk about this issue of um, this part of the book being read as evidence of political subversion? And for you, um, as much as possible, given the kind of texture of and the details of what's happening in the story, why is that not the right way to understand this? Right. Um, Yeah. uh, So there's a great deal of complexity to this. Um, And I I hope you can, you know, talk more about certain aspects of it. But um, just to give you a sort of a um, entryway into, you know, the complex question of, you know, the the, the story's meaning, um, the very first modern uh, Korean interpreter of the story of Hong Gildong was a man by the name of Kim Tae-jun, who during the colonial era wrote the first major uh, major book on the history of Joseon Dynasty fiction. Right? Um, and, uh, um, and that slim book has become, I mean, unbelievably influential in all future studies of Joseon Dynasty literature. Um, to the extent of um, uh, to the extent of many of this book, English, including English language ones, um, sometimes quote Kim Tae-jun verbatim um, in terms of a lot of ideas. Right? Um, the problem is that a lot of his ideas are now really seen as problematic at best, if not actually wrong. Um, and uh, and uh, and there, there's sort of the sort of the factual basis of this, but uh, there's also an ideological basis to this because. Um, Kim Tae-jun was a radical nationalist and a committed communist. Um, and, uh, um, and so his interpretation of the story of Hong Gil-dong tended to be one that was very subversive and revolutionary. And he had this notion that the supposed author of, um, of the story of Hong Gil-dong, the 17th century statesman and poet Hong Yun, um, was a kind of a proto-socialist of uh, of Joseon Dynasty, who uh, who met his end because of a failed attempt to um, 
have a kind of a proto-socialist revolution in Joseon Dynasty itself to usher in a more egalitarian society. And and the story of the uh, of Hong Gil-dong as a kind of his uh, literary manifesto of his radical political ideas, right? Um, <laughs> well, this is extremely problematic for all kinds of reasons, but um, but because his interpretation had been so influential, um, it tends to be seen as um, so Hong Gil-dong's activity as an outlaw. It tends to be seen as um, a series of radical critiques of feudalism, right? Uh, which is exactly how Kim Tae-jun put it, right? Uh, Joseon Dynasty, feudalism, uh, its inequities and, and so on. And the Hong Gil-dong as uh, um, this sort of, you know, Joseon Dynasty uh, uh, proto-socialist who want to change society and so on, right? Um, now, there's a couple of things I want to point out. One is that um, he... Um, you know, Hong Gil-dong always couches his activities as um, as things that he would have liked to have done as a government official, right? Which is to, um, you know, punish um, corrupt officials and, you know, and make sure, like, um, uh, corrupt people aren't hoarding wealth and so on and so on. Um, and there's never a moment when you could point to where he really thought that he wanted to completely radically change the nature of the society. Um and uh, uh, and once he's sort of you know forgiven by the king, you know he's he's sort of very happy and he's um and once the king grants him an official position in the court, uh, not only does he express unending gratitude to the monarch, um, he does him a huge favor by leaving Joseon, <laughs> um, so he can spare him the embarrassment of having an ex criminal working as you know working in his government, right? Um, now the thing is, uh, I mean, so um, and you know. Um, one of the, and a lot of the things that like Hong Gil-dong is saying that um, people have pointed to as evidence of his anti-feudalistic um, uh, uh, critique, um, you know, things like uh, they, you know, there ought to be a proper meritocracy so that people like himself, who's from secondary uh, background, should not be discriminated against. Um, you know, uh, officials ought to be benevolent and correct in their behavior, and people ought not to hold wealth and all that. Um, you know, that's not really Marx. That's Confucius. <laughs> These are Confucian cliches. I mean, pretty much every, you know, intellectual um, of the Confucian mold uh, just have to give lip service to all these ideas. These are these are hardly radical ideas, right? I mean, these are sort of a classic sort of, you know, I mean, you know, Confucius and Manchus themselves have said stuff like this, right? Meritocracy, you know, benevolence of, you know, people, people power holders and so on and so on, right? Um, now, um, I want to be at this point be very, very careful here because um, I was actually uh, asked during a previous interview um, uh, why I thought that the story of Hong Gil-dong was inherently conservative. Um, and uh, that sort of made me panic <laughs> because I said, no. I would no, never I... ask you that. I would never. <laughs> okay. No, 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 of course not. Right? <laughs> oh, oh, no, no. You're, you're too, way too astute a reader to be honest. Yes, I would never do that. Anyway. Yeah. Um, no, no, but I, but I, but I said that, yeah, but you know, I can understand why my introduction might have given you that impression that I thought that way, right? Uh, because, um, you know, I mean, for so long, the standard reading of Hong Gil-dong is that it's a highly, highly subversive work. It's anti-feudalistic. Um, and it's all, you know, it, it, people will go so far as to say it's proto-socialistic and so on, right? Um, so I pushed back against it, um, you know, a bit, um, 
you know, in all the ways that I already, I already talked about. But, you know, of course, there are many, many elements is, is that's extremely subversive, right? I mean, it, uh, it's, you know, in a, especially in a Confucian society, it's a, it's a critique of fatherhood because, you know, I mean, you know, Confu- uh, Hong Yildong's father is not, I mean, he's sort of a failed father. Uh, it is a critique of monarchy. Um, and, and, you know, and the, and the fact that, you know, it makes a hero out of a lawbreaker. Yeah, that's extremely, you know, uh, um, subversive because, you know, Confucius would have never said that, that that's a proper way of, you know, uh, registering, you know, your discontent. Right. I mean, uh, I mean, there are proper ways to do it, which is endless remonstrance, remonstrance and, you know, <laughs> sending memorials to the king and so on. There, there, there are proper ways to, you know, do this and, and improper ways to do it and uh, and becoming a criminal is, of course, improper. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and robbing government offices. These are incredibly subversive. But um at the end of the day, what I would like to point out is that um, getting any complex work of literature and trying to fit it into the two binary categories of conservative or subversive is inherently foolish, right? <laughs> that uh, any great work of literature, uh, whichever, whichever way you want to go, you can find plenty of evidence for both, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's like either conservative, but that doesn't give you a holistic way of looking at it. And essentially, like, um, I mean, like, like for instance, if you take like, uh, I don't know, um, Tolstoy's Anna Karenina, right? Uh, is that a conservative novel because it talks about the horrific consequences of adultery, you know, uh, ruining of the family and all of that, and it's a sort of moralistic novel saying that you shouldn't commit adultery, or, or is it subversive because Anna Karenina is such a you know sympathetic figure, and you know we uh, and um, and we come to like sort of sympathize with her position, and all that. Well, those are sort of stupid questions. You know? I mean, it's it's both. You know, I mean, it's it's obvious that Tolstoy, you know, did not approve of adultery, but it's also obvious that you know I, uh, you know, uh, Anna, Anna Anna is a very sympathetic woman, and that that's what makes you know the novel so interesting, so endlessly interesting. Right? I mean, because it it. Uh, it works in their poll. Um, and I'll say the same thing about Hong Gyo-tong. Um, Yes, there's lots of subversive uh, subversive element in it, but no, it's not proto-socialistic. Okay. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's, you know, and it's not anti-feudalistic as such, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're critiques of, you know, uh, of the status quo there, right? Um, and I'm sure we can talk about this, but you know, I mean, this, I mean, the conservative element of it, I think, is uh, shows up nowhere else better than in the last part where he gets to make his own society. That's right. And so there's this third part, um, and we won't have a whole lot of time to talk about this, but I want to at least make sure that we um, go through it a little bit for listeners so that they can know um, there's a whole lot more magic to come, actually. So the third part of the book, or the next part, follows um, Hong Gildong in a bunch of magical adventures in far-off lands. He builds this um, series of realms in this part of the book, and you talk um, here in the book, and we won't have a whole lot of time to talk about it now, but just to kind of signal for listeners who might be particularly interested in this issue, you talk about the ways that these realms have been referred to by some people as utopias, but you urge readers um, to kind of not uh, not necessarily see them in that way, and we can talk about that later if we have time. But 
but there are these series of realms he builds. He constantly changes his form in this part of the book. At one point, he makes eight fully functional alternate Gildongs out of straw. Okay, really, really interesting. He tricks people all the time. At one point, he figures out how to get himself named Minister of War. I think you sort of alluded to this before. He saves three women from a pack of monsters that had kidnapped them. He does. He like pretends to be a doctor and gives the main monster this medicine that's actually poison. And so he rescues the women. One of them becomes his wife, and the others are so grateful they become his concubines. And I have a note in the margin on this part of the book that says, Hubba Hubba. It worked out very well for Hong Gildong. So toward the end of the book, he comes back into contact with his family. All kinds of stuff happens um, with his brother, and he builds this incredible tomb um, that ultimately winds up being the place that his parents rest. Okay, so Minsu, um, to kind of maybe as a way to bring out some of what's happening in this later part of the book for listeners that you feel um, is particularly interesting, were there any moments here that as a, a translator, um, as someone who is actually, you know, a creative writer, um, insofar as you're translating this work and producing this creative work of your own, were there any moments here that you found particularly interesting that you'd want to point us to and open up a little bit for listeners? Yeah, um, the, the utopian part I think I find very interesting um, because um, uh, the aforementioned Kim Tae-jun, uh, the first interpreter of Hong Gil-dong, um, in he he dedicates an entire sub sub chapter to um, analyzing Hong Gil-dong, uh, the story of Hong Gil-dong in detail as a subversive anti-feudalistic work, but says very little about that last part. Uh, about what happens when he goes to um, a different country and gets to uh, remake his uh, make a society of his own, of which he becomes a king, right? um, and uh, and he um, he calls it um, the country that he founds it. Uh, Kim Tae-jun described it as an an ideal land uh, or an ideal country, right? um, and uh, since then. Um, Pretty much every literary um, descriptions of that section, uh, both in uh, Korean and uh, I found numerous descriptions of this in English language texts as well, um, constantly describes um, Hong Gil-dong, the king, uh, his kingdom as a utopia. Right? Um, and uh, uh, and I I was under the impression before I read the novel too, uh, you know, before I you know uh, read read the novel too, but um, but. I was sort of appalled that um, it was it's nothing of the thought. Um, he basically replicates Joseon Dynasty monarchy in his island with himself as an absolute monarch. Mm-hmm. Um, all the titles that he gives to his, uh, you know, um, his uh, his people, his generals, his uh, ministers and so on. Uh, identical to Joseon Dynasty titles, um, and something that you pointed to before, which I actually found quite appalling, um, which is that yeah, he has these three women, um, and he makes one of he marries one of them, and the other two becomes concubine, which means that he has also instituted the Joseon Dynasty uh, law of one woman per man, mm-hmm. which means that 
there's also going to be secondary children in his kingdom, right? right. It's almost that he's like completely forgotten <laughs> his frustrations as a as a secondary child, right? Now that's that's going to be replicated in his kingdom as well, right? Where he's, I mean, the, apparently the sons from his concubine are going to be the rulers of the subordinate territory. Um, to the main territory he has in one island, right? Um, and uh, um, and to me, that's uh, I mean, you know, is you. So there's description of how happy people are in that kingdom because of the wise, you know, um, rule of uh, you know Hong Gyeong as a king. But uh, if you, I mean, there are few, there are very few descriptions of it. Um, and what they are is, if you pay close atten- attention to them, they are just description of a an ideal time. Um, under an ideal king, right? It's it's just no innovative system of government. Um, there's no mention of any kind of egalitarian, you know, system or elimination of uh, you know uh, the caste system and all that, right? I mean, it everything is described seems to be just you know a traditional grand monarch. Um, and I, I actually think it's uh, it's it's unfair to have expected a Joseon dynasty writer to come out with a completely radical different vision of the kind of society that he could have constructed, right? Um, and it's, it's, it's just a kingdom. I mean, it's just a regular kind of, you know, dynastic kingdom. Um, and that, that part, I think, um, for reasons that I, I can tell you, I mean, pretty much, I, I think what's, uh, what's interesting about the status of the story of Hong Dong in modern Korea is that it's a story that everybody knows, but few people have actually read. Right, um, and I think that part would actually surprise even a lot of Koreans who think that they know the story, right? Um, who've been who've been um, uh, sort of led to believe that the kind of society that he creates at the end, when he gets a chance to, you know, uh, be a monarch, uh, would be something completely different, and it isn't. Mm-hmm. So this is so. There's a lot of um, really interesting stuff that we could talk about. That's mm-hmm. you know located in the particular storyline. And I'll just say that we won't have time to do a yeah. lot of that. But I hope that listeners will actually um, get their hands on a copy and and sit down and read it for themselves because it's fascinating and it really is a page turner. It really, really is. It's really fun um, to not just read, but also for listeners who are particularly interested in, um, in thinking about this in terms of an assignment. For for a class, there are lots and lots of different kinds of um, course syllabi that this would fit really, really beautifully into. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, it's a short reading. This is a reading that uh, students can easily do in a week. Um, and so this is, uh, I highly, highly recommend that listeners um, look this up and think about it in terms of a pedagogical material as well as something that's really um, a, just kind of a pleasure to read. But this is, but part of that pleasure comes from your particular skill as a translator. And we don't have a whole lot of time, but I would just um, uh, like to ask you for listeners out there who are listening to our conversation, who are inspired by your ability to balance and manage the work of a writer, the work of a historian, the work of a translator, and who might be inspired to consider integrating um, translation projects into their own work. Is there any advice that you have um, to other people and colleagues who might think about doing this in terms of really any aspect of the process of balancing all of these things, managing this, and sort of undertaking this craft that you feel notable and worth sharing? 
Yeah. Um, yeah. As I said, that that part of it was extremely challenging for me because this is languages, the, the language and mentality that I was not familiar with, and I had to really learn to put myself in. Um, and uh, um, and as you said, the balancing act is really really important. Um, I mean, it's one thing when you're translating from one European language to another, where there is some similarity to. Uh, similarity to the the way the languages work, but when you have such two completely different linguistic systems from Korean to English, and also you know pre-modern Korean to English, um, there's uh, uh, there's a whole set of uh, difficulties um, that uh, you wouldn't have in a you know in, in related languages. Um, one of which is that um, I've always found that the um, this there's always a I mean so uh, the, usually the way to go is that do a uh, that I, I went about is that first do a very, very literal translation, right? Um, just almost word by word. And then you can't stop there because a lot of this just comes out as gibberish if it's just too literal, right? Um, and uh, and then, sl- uh, then I had to do a slow process of making it more and more colloquial to make it more, uh, to, to make it flow better and make it um, uh, uh, really comprehensible to, uh, to modern readers. Um, but um, I think one advice that I would like to give is that sometimes you don't want to make it too colloquial. I mean, I think lot, lots of nuances um, get sacrificed because um, in, in the interest of making it um, make, making it sound, you know, making it uh, sound um, fluent for modern readers, um, you know, especially when you're dealing with a completely different culture of a completely different time. I think it's okay when things some some of these things seem alien. The way way people um, are putting it seem alien, um, and uh, uh, and you know, and I think it's okay to so, sometimes leave it the the way it is, and then explain so, um, certain things in in the footnotes, um, because um, you do want to give your reader a flavor of what uh, how different it is when you're thinking in a completely different language, um, and so on. Um, and uh, I mean, there are two very brief examples that I give was um one simple one is i i really had a um had a dilemma as to how to translate names from chinese um whether i was going to give the korean way of pronouncing those chinese names or or just you know using the opinion system you know do it in the chinese way um like for instance uh confucius uh do i do kongzi or kongja which is the way koreans would pronounce it um and uh and i i just decide that i no i i want readers to um uh, to I want to replicate for readers as closely as possible as possible what it's like to read it in Korean. So I, I kept it in the way that Koreans uh, think of it, right? So it's uh, it's you know Gongja and Mengja rather than Kongzi and Mengzi, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, and they explained that in the footnote. And the other one is um, you know sort of more obscure proverbs and expressions that I could have you know switched to um, you know uh, you, you used um, English equivalents um, but I, I just found those fun you know um, I like for, I, you know and I, I like for instance for me like uh, I mean there are certain proverbs that are still used today right like the proverb um, you know the bird hears in the day and the rat hears in the night uh, which is um, uh, which means that uh, you know I mean uh, be careful what you say because you, you're likely to be overheard right so so if you're if you're about to tell me a secret and I, I see that there are too many people around I'll say well maybe we should go to some better place private because you know what they say bird hears in the day and the rat 
rat ears in the night, right? Um, and, you know, the thing is, I could have translated that the walls have ears, mm-hmm. but that's not, you know, I, but I would like to use the Korean proverb and just explain it in a footnote. I mean, that just seems much more closer to it. Um, mm-hmm. And also, it was, I, it, was a, it was a great challenge because there are certain proverbs that are no longer used today in Korea. Uh, Korea. Uh, so I had to figure it out. Like, for instance, um, remember when uh, uh, Hong Gyo-tong um, lays siege to this castle um, and he warns the king of the castle that, um, you know, if you don't surrender right now, uh, I will take your castle and then uh, rock and jade will burn alike. Oh, yes, yes. I do remember that. Yes. Yeah. And I was like, what does that mean? Rock and jade will burn alike, right? <laughs> because that's not used in Korea today, right? So I did do quite a lot of research and I figured out that it means that all people will be destroyed, whether they are high or low or good or evil, right? So, you know, obviously rock is a common thing and jade is precious and they will all burn alike, right? Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and there, there are other expressions like that. They, um, you know, they are English equ- equivalents, but um, I, I I honestly don't think it's, uh, I mean, I, I, you know, it's it's so difficult because you have to make a judgment call at every point. I mean, do I, do I err on the side of making it colloquial and flow better or do I err on the side of preserving the original? Um, and, uh, but I, I think, um, um, I, I think over translating is just as great as uh, translating sin as it is um, as uh, as under translating, where it's just you know it's it's too literal and um, and you know I mean, and, and and people just haven't haven't done enough uh, good job of just just really looking for the right solution that goes in the midway. So, Minsu, we are now um, nearing the conclusion of our conversation. There's so much more that we could talk about, right? I mean, just the context, the the texture of the story. Um, but in the meantime, while listeners are waiting to get their hands on their own copies of the book, mm-hmm. is there anything that you'd like to mention for listeners that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to kind of put on the table before we close? Yeah, Um so um, the introduction that I wrote um, is part of a much longer research because, as I said, when I looked into this, I, I sort of stepped on a, a scholar's, a scholar's minefield. Um, and like, for instance, there's a whole question of, um, you know, the dating, right? Uh, the dating of the uh, the piece. Um, and uh, why, for instance, um, you know, because of Kim Tae-jun's interpretation and so on, why most Koreans still today believe that um, it's uh, it's a 17th century work uh, by Hogyun. Uh, it's a radical work. And, and, uh, um, and why uh, current scholarship, and, you know, based on also my own research, it seems fairly obvious that it's actually not that old, that it's actually from probably from the mid 19th century um and uh, um and it's it's a uh, uh, it's a very complicated story um of how the, the interpretation but uh interesting enough it's also uh, it's also a story about how um the problem with um the way um literature is taught in the korean school system it's kind of interesting uh you know because uh um it's uh, because there's sort of certain ideas about it, um, but in the, I mean, you know, as you know, I mean, it's the uh, the school system in Korea, uh, as in you know, uh, China and other places, are so much geared toward memorization. Um, it's all geared toward passing the um, uh, college entrance exams. Uh, instead of having students read the entire work, um, they read a small section and are given 
five or six important facts to memorize um, so that they can, you know, pick the right one during the, you know, absolutely crucial, you know, multiple choice uh, questions that they get as part of the examination, which are going to determine the rest of their lives. Right? Uh, and uh, um, and so um, so they're given like a tiny sections of the uh, of the story and uh, asked to memorize, you know, I mean, it's written by Hogyun, subversive work that's anti you know, feudalism and so on and so on. Um, and as a result, um, most uh, Koreans don't ever get the chance to like read the entire thing. Um, and uh, um, and so, and you know, it's, but so we have this kind of weird situation where the story is so famous and everybody thinks that they know the story, but very few people have actually read it. Um, it just sort of reminds me of a um, bunch of years ago. Um, I saw this like travel documentary where this film crew went to, the town of La Mancha in Spain. Mm-hmm. And as you can imagine, that entire town, much of its economy is based on Don Quixote uh, tourism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and there's Don Quixote stuff everywhere, statues and all that, right? And uh, at some point, the film crew started asking, you know, townspeople, um, so when was the last time you read Don Quixote, right? And there's, oh, I actually haven't read it, right? And they couldn't find a single person who actually read the novel, right? And, and the, one of the reasons for that is that, you know, it's too familiar to them. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, they know the story, right? They, they, or they think they do, right? I mean, the, you know, tilting at the windmill and all of that, right? Um, and we have a very similar situation in Korea. Uh, everybody, everybody in Korea can recite Hong Tong's lamentation. I cannot even address my father as father and my older brother as brother, right? I mean, everybody can recite that. And, uh, and people are, are probably are not reading the book because they think they know the story already. Um, and all of these are sort of very fascinating story that I, um, I realized that um, I had to write an entire book on. So, so the manuscript is done and uh, I'm in the process of looking for a good university press <laughs> to, uh, to place it with. And I think uh, along with the translation, um, uh, I, you know, people will get the full story um, that I managed to do a very short uh, uh, description of in the introduction. Great. Well, best of luck with that project. Um, thank you. Thank you so much for taking time away from that to talk with me today. It's really been a pleasure and congratulations on an awesome translation. Great. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us and we'll see you next time.